Welcome to Totally Fine with Tiffany Philippou, a podcast about those life-altering experiences that shape who we are today and those times when we were not totally fine. I'm your host, Tiffany Philippou, and I've written a memoir, Totally Fine and Other Lies I've Told Myself. Each episode, I'm joined by a guest who'll tell me their story about a time that they pretended to be totally fine. I know what it's like to pretend to be okay, and that's what my book is about. After my boyfriend Richard died by suicide, I spent most of my 20s pretending that this never happened. I know that it's not just what happens to us, but the stigma we feel and how we suppress it that's the real problem. So here's why we're having these conversations, to quiet the shame monster and to remind us that we're not alone. You know, I think there's a paradox to the things that we bury. The more buried it is, the less you understand how it got there. (laughs) You saw it as this like really dangerous thing. And it's this metaphor for going into the world. The car doesn't care whether you have like loads of potential, right? If you die in a car accident, you can't like reason with the fact of a car coming in the opposite direction that you drive into. Like there's this brutality and arbitrariness, I think, to traffic and the way that we operate in it. Today, I'm joined by Joe Livingstone. Joe grew up in London and has lived on three continents, including Hong Kong, and is now a writer living in Brooklyn, New York. Joe was the 2020 recipient of the Nona Balakian Citation for Excellence in Reviewing from the National Book Critics Circle, and they've written for The New York Times, The Times Literary Supplement, Book Forum, The Guardian, and The New Yorker. They also have a PhD in medieval literature from NYU. Most recently, Joe is a staff writer for Culture at The New Republic. Joe joined The New Republic in 2017 shortly after Trump won the election. On joining, they wrote that, I was going to prove that arts criticism truly matters, that it has as much capacity to provoke dialogue, foster empathy and refashion imaginations as direct political commentary. Then I was going to have to make it fun or nobody would be reading. And they certainly lived up to that promise as a critic in the last few years. But Joe isn't just a renowned critic. They also feature in my memoir. Joe and I have known each other since we were 10 years old when we met at music camp and were in the same string quartet. And we've been friends ever since. And when I moved to New York in my mid-twenties, I lived with Joe in Bed-Stuy. Joe's work, which is as witty as it is subversive, forces us to think differently about the times we live in. And so it's an honour to have them on the show. Welcome, Joe. Thank you so much for having me, Tiffany. It's very exciting. (laughs) What do you think the uh, 10-year-old me and you would think of us now? I don't think I certainly didn't expect to become a writer when I was that age. And did you expect to become what you are now? God, I don't really remember. I think I mostly wanted to be a forensic pathologist because of the novels that Patricia Cornwell wrote which I started reading the next year when our friend Anna started lending them to me so I really thought that I wanted to do like autopsies and stuff um for a job but I don't know as I got older it seemed more and more kind of like 
obvious somehow that I did want to write. Um, and I think that was partly just because I always wanted to process things a bit. Um, like growing up, I don't know, life goes past you so quickly and you have this feeling that you want to like take stock and like take a moment to actually think again about all the crazy stuff you've just been through. But like you never get really any time for that you know when you're especially when you're younger you're just like going from exam to exam to like first all kinds of first experiences so what I really like about criticism is that opportunity to retread experiences to go over them again and um I think in that sense like memoir and criticism have a lot in common just because they have that you know, I think the pretentious way to put it would be like a similar temporality because you're like retreading the same moment again, um, like the experience of reading or just like the experience of going through time as a person. Um, I mean, they have different registers. So like, I think that they're written in different styles, but like structurally, they're quite similar. I know. What do you think? So maybe you'd be better at criticism. Than well, you it sounds like you're the cello and I'm the violin and we're both playing in the same string quartet. <laughs> <laughs> That's what it sounds like to me. <laughs> Um, I'd never thought of memoir in that way. Um, I definitely didn't think about anything or process anything in my twenties. So definitely the act of doing my memoir in my thirties of my twenties, maybe was that pause or that, that thing that you talk about, but I'd never actually thought about it like that before. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I don't think that, I think no matter how introspective you are as a young person, you just don't get the same opportunity to well, you just, you can't, right? Like you don't have the tools to put things fully into context and to contemplate them. And memoir, you know, like with a, especially like a book length memoir, like the one that you have written, which um, I'm really excited that is coming out in two weeks. Um, you know, you have to turn your life into something with narrative cohesion to it, you know, like a beginning and a middle and the end. And that stuff doesn't, um, I don't think many people like naturally experience the events in their life as like following a story, right? <laughs> maybe, yeah. can you just like talk, maybe tell me a little bit about like when you were starting to write this memoir, like how, whether you had any idea of what, how it was going to be structured. I say this as someone who like really struggles with structure in writing longer pieces. Um, I always had a really strong memory of certain moments and certain happenings actually conversations most powerfully there are some conversations in there where someone might have said a sentence to me that changed the course of my life so to speak but I didn't know how it all tied together so there were loads of moments that I knew would be in it but I didn't know why um but I always knew it was going to span 10 years I always knew it was going to beginning at 20 ending at 30 I mean it's not that profound to do that is it it's kind of quite neat and tidy but I always had that vision um to do that it's profound I mean that's Maybe. a really key aspect of it no I just think it's really interesting that you knew that at the outset like presumably you knew that before you knew how long the book was going to be yeah it's something I felt really strongly about um but I think there was a subconscious part of me that knew it was important to talk about grief that spanned a decade because I had no experience of any culture that told that story. Um, 
so it was so there was a subconscious part of me that felt it was important to say this stuff affects you I mean forever essentially um as much as I'd love to keep my book going forever I mean I'd, I'd love to write a sequel so maybe <laughs> maybe I will but um but yeah so um yeah but I wonder if it's subconscious or something like that just knew but I always knew it was going to be 10 years I always knew it was going to track it for a decade um and the, and the the joy I suppose of what you're talking about with that threading threading it together or processing or narrativizing your life which is you're right that is a weird thing to do um but it was a very it, when it all made sense like why are those the scenes that I remember so vividly why are those the moments that have um that have uh significance like what is important about that little conversation I had in a pub in London fields one day and um threading that all together um so yeah I mean I definitely it's funny sorry I'm just gonna interrupt you to say that you know as a critic I would describe what you're describing as having like an ear for conversation like an ear for dialogue like what you remember is scenes of dialogue right like um and lots of people don't remember dialogue at all if you think about how some novels right like are just dialogue all the way through and the story comes out that way and some novels are just uh are like written out in prose you know or the conversation gets like melted together or something like I think that's a really particular I don't know whether that's like as you say subconscious or conscious but like that's a way that your imagination is working like even just knowing that you that's how you remember things like that to me, like suggests your suitability for writing them down. <laughs> <laughs> also make a great gossip. <laughs> no, exactly. Exactly. Like, <laughs> no, like dialogue is the basis, I think, for like good dramatic writing of all kinds. I don't know. Mm. I'm just fascinated. I think that it's so cool that you've written um, this memoir. Um, is there, can we do like a quick maybe not so quick like can we maybe you could talk a little bit about like when exactly the memoir is coming out like it what's it called um some other like basics because I'm really excited about it and I think that other people who listen to your regular podcast and you know read your um writing and stuff will be excited too um Yes, happy to. Um, I, I enjoy <laughs> how the tables have turned, um, oh, yeah. but I'm I'm coming back to you. So <laughs> hang in there. I'm coming back to your stories. Um, thank you, though. Um, I, just the quick thing I'll say is, I did feel revisiting my New York Times. I was like, oh no, I don't know if I was the best housemate ever. But it was actually Anna, <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, which maybe we won't go into now. But it was actually Anna Anna Codgerado, who's a exec producer for this show, and obviously my co-host and BFF um, of Is This Working, said to me, "If you're not cringing at who you were when you were younger, then you're doing something wrong." So I found that very comforting. Tiffany, you were a great housemate. <laughs> I don't know what you mean. If you were a bad housemate, then I also was because I, I don't know. We were definitely like on a level. Okay. <laughs> it was a good time. Brilliant. No, I do have fond memories. Um, but yeah, for, yeah. So uh, I'll, I'll give the, I'll give the quick lowdown of the book, and then we will. Uh, then I'm putting you in the hot seat. Um, mm -hmm. So it is called Totally Fine and Other Lies I've Told Myself, 
and it tracks the story starting when I, as we've just discussed, um, when I turned 20 years old and shortly after that, uh, my boyfriend, Richard, who was at university with me, uh, killed himself. And it talks about the impact that experience had on me for a decade. Um, but it's also a relatable story about what it's like to grow up. So yes, I had this lens of this experience, but there's plenty in there for anyone who's rode the wave that is the 20s. And it's very much a story that examines, and maybe you're right, I mean, in the sense when you were talking about how perhaps we're playing in the same temperament of 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 creation but it does consider societal expectations and the impact that has on young people and there are themes that do talk about the world we live in and you know the 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 pressures of young people um all sorts of and how we relate to other people how we relate to ourselves it covers i mean there's all sorts of things in there like um you know dating body image uh work culture um you know, money problems, consumption, like the list could go on, like all the sort of uh, pillars of what's wrong with the world coming out in my uh, my um, 20s. Um, well, I guess a certain what's wrong with certain cultures in certain worlds, I would say, um, coming out in the book. Um, so yeah, I really hope people get something from it. I hope people find it comforting. I hope it shifts people's perspectives. Um, the other thing that's interesting about the dialogue point that you made is it, it, it is a book about all that matters in life really is the people. Um, and it's interesting how my memory serves purely as how I've related and talked to people. And without wishing to get too meta, I mean, I'm literally doing a, my job now is to talk to people. Um, and that's what we're doing <laughs> now. So it's just, it's obviously, it's obviously my sort of calling to, to, to chat to people and speak to people. And that's how I grow and enjoy life. So, yeah. I agree. And um, I think that I am similar. In fact, I think that a lot of our closest friends are similar, like verbal people. Um, but as you say, it's funny, you know, like the people that you grow up with, um, you know, you shape each other through conversation. And so in a way, like, it's really difficult to know who you would be without those people and that's I think why like the answers are in the conversations themselves and yeah it's a it is kind of like a crazy full um full loop around but yeah you know as you say like it is just chatting but like chatting is also like the center of human experience <laughs> yes. people say people say connection which is a more sounds like a you know like but it is also I like I love just calling it chatting um yeah because it, I really think it's language Right, like language is the special thing, right? Connection, yeah, like connect, all connections valuable, but personally, I just really like the word aspect. Yeah. Um, and I think right. you do too. I do, I love words. <laughs> I'm a words person. Love, yeah. love, love, yeah. Um, all right, should we delve into your Let's time, your time of Totally Fine? Um all right. Well, tell us, Joe, and thank you also so much for being so generous as to come on and, and tell us your story. No, thank you for having me. Okay, Joe, let's get into your story. What was the experience that changed you? So the experience that I wanted to talk about um, 
it's not something that can be easily summarized as being positive or negative, but I think has been really powerful anyway. And it is the experience of learning to drive, which um, I did at the age of 17, maybe like 17 into 18, as most people uh, I okay, most people is a vast generalization. I have no idea what the statistics on learning to drive are, but I um <laughs> most people my around you, uh, I guess is what you're saying. Most people around me, including yeah. Tiffany Philippou. Um <laughs> so I got my provisional license, which uh I think most of your listeners will know in the UK, although I don't know, I'm sure you have loads of international listeners too. In the UK you have to get a provisional license before uh, your full license and that's when you take lessons or you know drive around with your parent and nearly crash all that stuff and then I had lessons with an instructor called Anne-Marie uh, who had come recommended from our friend Anna Seven. and learning to drive was for me uh, I think radically reconfiguring experience because you know, up until that point, again, this is obvious, but also really profound, I think. I had always been a passenger and now I was learning to direct this massive, powerful object, which, you know, all of your life as a child is like a little bit contained in like buses and vehicles, you know, like schlepping your PE kit to and from school or whatever. Um, and now suddenly I was going to have that responsibility and it was really, really terrifying. So... And I think that's natural, normal, but it was strange to have such, uh, I think, like immediate fear to be at the forefront of an experience that you had, I had to keep doing (laughs) over and over again, because every time I drove, so I grew up on a really steep hill um, in London. And every time, you know, I like had to try and start the car and drive it up the hill, I would roll backwards a little bit and I would just, I would have these nightmares about it. And even though I liked driving instinctively and I still like driving, um, by the time that I passed my license, I didn't, I don't think that I actually was like psychologically ready to pass it because I got my license and then suddenly was like driving constantly. And really, I don't think like I hadn't come to terms with, um, how dangerous it was, how fast I was driving, uh, you know, on like the North Circular, not like glamorous roads, but like heavily trafficked roads through London. And um, I immediately wanted to drive everywhere, like drive to school and back, drive my friends around or like drive with my friends. And I still have nightmares, I think, about driving carelessly, which I think I did as a teenager. and it's really never, ever got less scary to me. Uh, my wife drives really fast. She's a really good driver. But I sit, like, in the passenger seat with, like, my hands over my eyes because I can't deal with the stress. And I'm kind of wondering, like, quite where that fear comes from. And I've also never really been in... I've never really been in a car accident. So I don't know what that role that plays in it. But, yeah, basically... I still feel really stressed out about it. And I've definitely buried something about driving and learning to drive, but like, I don't really know what it is. So it's manifesting as anxiety, as like backseat driver anxiety, which is not a good personality dream. Um, But yeah, so that's my experience. Um, 
I feel I don't have that much insight into it, but that's like the depth, the, you know, the evidence that it has well, been buried. Um, the insight for me, if we just go back to the beginning, is when you talk about mm-hmm. how it's like a metaphor for growing up for the first time you were given all this power over, I think in your email, you described it as a, like a murder weapon vehicle murder weapon right murder like- weapon like you saw it as this like really dangerous thing um and it's this metaphor for going into the world and maybe you weren't ready for it or maybe it was scary i don't know yeah although i think it might be the other way around like life is the metaphor but driving is the actual literal thing because I think in a way I was more comfortable with thinking about the idea of my own responsibility and growing up all as like a metaphor and everything being really open and subject to change. But the thing about driving this massive car, which as I say, is like a potential murder weapon because you can kill people with it or like yourself or your passengers, whatever, right? Um, It was the material reality of that that like the car doesn't care whether you have like loads of potential, right? If you die in a car accident, you can't like reason with the fact of a car coming in the opposite direction that you drive into. Like there's this brutality and arbitrariness, I think to traffic and the way that we operate in it, which like um, you have to not think about the reality of, otherwise you're not gonna be able to drive the car. So, I don't know which one is the metaphor because now that does sound like the car is the metaphor, but it definitely relates to the rest of life in a way that like, um, I find very compelling. And I think, I think it might be that. I think it's that like, there's this terrible danger and you can't spend all your time thinking about it. And it's maybe a little bit like, well, I don't know. What do you think? Well, I was wondering if it has anything to do with control. Yeah, right, maybe. Because you can't have full control over a car, but you have to try. Yeah. Well, I think a lot of people, I think a lot of stuff comes out when when people are driving or when in that kind of context. Like some people choose to never drive. Some people don't learn to drive. Some people have to always be the driver. Um, There's so many ways that are I mean yeah that driving and being in cars plays out how we view the world basically or how we think about ourselves so when you're talking about how you can't control what other people do um yeah. it just made me wonder that yeah I mean maybe that's what the car signifies for you I think it's all those things right it's about control and like having to be comfortable with a certain lack of control Um, And acknowledging that, like, uh, it's all on you, right? Like, when you're learning, the teacher has that backup set of brakes. But there's there's a limit to how much they can protect you. (laughs) And um, my amazing driving instructor had, like, crystals around the car to, like, control the vibes. And she was just, like, really empathetic and really, really calming. And... uh, so she was fantastic. But I don't know, maybe I needed to be shell-set a bit more. Can you talk maybe a bit about like your experience learning to drive? Uh, I was yes. there. <laughs> you were there. I think, so I 
I would say again, like let's let's go to driving therapy together. I think I was very avoidant about the realities of the dangers. Um, mm. I think it's safe to say I was a responsible driver. Um, now I drive. I don't give any thought to the dangers of it, if I'm being honest. Um, but I imagine that's another extreme um, and a coping mechanism of sorts. Because I don't think I could get in a car if I started thinking about it in those in those ways. But th there's so many times, you know, in sort of budget debates where people compare something that's happening in the world, some sort of statistic to how many car accidents happen. But it doesn't feel like a forefront of our mind reality that the odds or whatever they might be to die in that way. Um, so it's not something I think about in that way, but. And yet it I happens all the time, right? And yeah. I've known a couple of people who've died in car accidents, like, and obviously like substance use interacts with that. But as you say, like, it's the statistic that people compare other types of risk to. And yet it's not, it's not that kind of maths doesn't instinctively work in our minds because like the reality of that danger isn't as you say like we would never be able to use this technology if we were cognizant of its dangers all the time um would you but i'm interested yeah and so i think when i think about how like i personally drove quite recklessly i think as a late teenager and sometimes you and I used to drive to school together and go through the McDonald's drive through and smoke cigarettes on oh, that's my part I smoke cigarettes and um just generally like enjoy our freedom a bit um but I also was definitely in denial about the dangers but that's also because it was so fun well it's freedom like the car represented freedom yeah. for us I think um do you mind if I ask you a couple of questions just around, you mentioned in passing that some you've known a couple of people died in car accidents. Yeah, of course. Um, is that, did, has, how old were you when that you experienced that? I mean, what, do you think there was a before and after with how you saw driving with what happened there? That's interesting. That's interesting. Yeah, the first one was a friend of my brother's and now I think about it, they were teenagers. So, um, and yeah, when he passed away, it was all a, a big shock, I think, for, especially like for my brother. So it wasn't something that, like, I wasn't particularly close to this, this guy. I just knew him, but it was enough for it to be like in my proximity and to have like really emotionally affected somebody that I cared about. Right. So yeah, maybe, maybe that was it. I mean, cause I knew how irresponsible my own brother was <laughs> and that like he drove, crazily too and it's funny yeah like it only takes like one incident to um I guess really change the way you think about behavior um as like risky or not I don't know I was the other day I saw this there were like three kids aged between like 12 and 16 and then a girl who was like walking with him down the street and we were kind of like walking down the same two blocks together for like five minutes. It became apparent that they were walking towards a party, like a local party that was in a shop front. And um, the girl was like an older cousin. And she had, I guess, been tasked with escorting her little cousins, like two blocks. And these 
cousins they were all boys and they were running from one side of the street to the other just like into traffic and she <laughs> she started off being like oh you get back here and then by the end she was screaming like what would i tell your mom uh like get the fuck out the road <laughs> she just like she couldn't get them to understand how terrifying what they were doing was for her even though it was you get what I mean? Like there was just this yeah. mismatch between their sense of their interpretation of the situation. It was like the more stress she got, the more fun it was for them. Um, and yeah, it's like that kind of matter of perception, because obviously if they, if there had been a kid at their school who had got like killed running by, you know, like running into traffic, then, you know, not to make assumptions, but I assume that maybe it would have felt different for them. So yeah, I guess the idea that that, leads us back to is that like what just happens to have happened in your life when you're a kid it does change it does shape not only your like personality the way you see the world but like really literal stuff like the danger of walking down the street by yourself or the danger of driving a car or like doing drugs or uh you know having mental health issues that stuff like when you're a kid, you can only really know, understand it like through primary experience or like through it being in your life. Like we all have a, a limit to our empathy as kids because we're not really like smart enough, I think, I to think, understand. I think, I, think, I think this is true of adulthood though. I think, um, mm. I think say if a friend of yours ends up with long COVID, you'll become much more scared of it. Or yeah, if a friend dies yeah. in a certain way, whatever it might be, um, because that's how humans make sense of the world is their experience, but also stories like we don't relate or engage with stats or the news in the same way. So I wonder whether, um, that's just how we are. Right. And then you happen to have it at, with this certain experience at this certain time, because, you know, you mentioned drugs or walking alone at night. I remember, you know, as a teenager, if I'd have known someone who'd been attacked walking home late at night. I wouldn't have done that. If I'd have known someone as a young teenager who'd fallen off a tree, I wouldn't have climbed them. Like there's so many things we did because yeah. we our brains could not clock. But I think that's true of how we live as adults as well. I think that you're right. But I also think that when you're younger, you're more likely to bury it because you've got no choice. Like when you're older, I think that, you know, you just got a little bit of a better shot at, placing it into a, an existing narrative but you just have don't have that many tools when you're a young person I think to I don't know I don't know I mean you go when when we when we talk about burying um with your story I'm wondering whether what you were burying was actually the adjacent experience of what happened to your brother's friend and then how that played out but correct me if I'm wrong, maybe the burying happened within the driving itself. But um, yeah, well, I mean, let me let me ask a question, actually. What what would you say the burying, what were you burying? Hmm. You know, I think there's a paradox to the things that we bury, which is that the more buried it is, the less you understand how it got there <laughs> and even what it is, right? Like, I don't actually know 
what it is that I'm feeling when in my conscious mind I think, oh my God, we're going to crash on the Brooklyn Queens Expressway, right? I've never crashed on the BQE, but something makes me feel like I'm going to. And I don't know. I don't know whether it was like my feeling in the driver's car. I don't know if it was like fear around like this person's passing and which, because yeah, I don't know. I mean, what is it that you think that in like revisiting stuff that you've buried and like pretending to be fine about, right? Like, um, like, I don't know. Maybe I just have very little insight into myself. It's difficult for me to like unpick things and yeah, necessarily no, like relate I'm... to their meaning in the present day. No, of course. I mean, do you feel like when you're in a car with someone, either as a driver or as a passenger, you have to pretend to be fine? Is that something that happens? Yes. (laughs) I have to train myself to do it. And maybe that's also because I remember driving in the car with my sister when she was learning to drive. And watching her learn to drive was really terrifying to me because I could see that she couldn't really do it, but she was like convincing herself in the same way that I had really recently, sorry, my sister's only two and a half years younger than me. So seeing her go through that process was actually maybe the most frightening thing of all because um, it was like seeing her false confidence because then I was, actually, I guess I was in the car once when she hit a bollard, but that wasn't that scary. I don't know. It's like something about, it's definitely a, a little bit of like, oh, you have to pretend to be fine for other people's safety, right? That like, we pretend to be fine, not just for like selfish, not really at all for selfish reasons, I guess. It's so that like everybody can just get on with it. And you think that, you know, your problems are going to be an impediment to moving forward. But actually it makes me really anxious. So I just like annoy her (laughs) and myself and I don't enjoy feeling that way so it's like by burying it I think I'm gonna make things easier but actually I just make it harder Hmm. does it come out in different ways then so instead of getting in the car and saying I find the thought of you driving me very anxiety inducing you just you don't say anything I presume (laughs) thanks for the ride but then do But do you think because you're not honest about that, either to yourself or to them, you said it makes you more annoying. Does it like come out in different ways or worse ways? Is that what you're saying? Yeah, definitely. Because what happens is that I pretend not to be annoyed or I'm not annoyed. I'm just like stressed. Right. So and then I will like gasp when something happens. And my wife is like, what the fuck are you gasping at? Because that's, you know, that's like input. If you're driving, you speak and like it sounds like I think we're about to crash and it doesn't like actually match up to her perception of the situation. So it makes it more dangerous. Um, So it's like a paradoxical effect, right? Which I guess is, I don't know. It's again, it's that thing of like, the less stressed you are, the less stressful the situation will be. And it reminds me of how my wife works in healthcare. And actually I think that we were talking about this the other day on the group chat, but about how if you're, patient is afraid of getting an IUD inserted then they're much more likely to literally experience pain um and so there's this element of like you don't want to mislead somebody 
but you don't want to unnecessarily worry them because that does actually have a really material effect on the brain. It's not that it actually hurts more or less in at the site of the nerves. It's about how your brain is interpreting the information from the nerves. So I don't know. I've been thinking about that a lot and like about how often the most practical thing in the moment can be to just to bury like an anxiety because like you just have to get on with things and you don't want to cause yourself more trauma but then sometimes the right thing is to revisit it and to go over it and yeah I don't know I mean I guess what you need is like a safe situation to do it and I a memoir is like quite a I guess it's like a space that you plot out that's your own and you get to have kind of control over not control in a controlling way but like autonomy did you find that empowering like to be able to go back and then be like tiff's version yes um yes you're the ultimate uh puppet master aren't you of your past (laughs) Um, exactly i mean we're all extremely controlling it's a human nature thing which is very ironic because it's impossible to control Mm. anything but i guess if you were to control (laughs) something bar the fact that but even a memoir your editor kind of makes comments um so you don't have full control um but yeah there is something there's something empowering in it but there's also something in yeah what gets left unsaid so I didn't talk about what happened to me for 10 years basically um apart from maybe you know after a night out or something like that I don't think that that counts um and so it builds it builds in power what gets left unsaid um and I, de- I yeah. reclaimed power by talking about it and especially something that had so much shame around it as well. Um, so yeah, I did, I did reclaim the narrative. I did own power back over the story. Um, but you lose power as well once it goes out into the public, once you write something. And this is what you talked about at the beginning about learning to shut out the reactions to your work. Right. Yeah, that's true. That is the like the first thing that I said. Because, right, it is losing power in like some ways, but it's also like sacrificing control in a way that you hope will be a, at least a bit safe because you're trying, you know, like you're the one starting the conversation this time, right? Like it's not life happening to you, like you're happening to life, <laughs> if that makes sense. It's true like that, a, yeah. <laughs> and also like, it's a creative act which is like inherently you know kind of like productive towards the future which can feel I mean maybe that's a bit too easy but like you know compared to like losing somebody that can feel like you know an ending like a shutting down like what literally a loss and I think to create something out of loss is uh yeah, it's just like there's a really nice structural, I think, neatness to it. Not that like writing, in my experience, has necessarily led me to a full understanding of anything. Just like a tiny bit more. I don't know. How much do you think that you've like gained an understanding about the universe from right, the process of writing a memoir? The universe, no, but maybe society. <laughs> <laughs> but maybe society, yes. And I do, I do look at the world differently now and I look at the culture we live in differently and I do use it as a framework 
to make decisions now. Um, it was almost like a little reminder to myself when I can feel myself slipping back into workaholism or mm -hmm. whatever it might be, just having the wrong priorities. Um, Interesting. Interesting. So, yeah, I hope it has that impact on other people, but maybe it won't, and which is fine. Um, but, but that's kind of, yes, how I see it. Um, but I think this, I think it's interesting because it's like we keep coming back to control and like what I said before about driving and control. Because I was also wanted to ask what happens when you drive now? Like how, how does that play out? So I guess it's a classic thing, right? Like I'm way less stressed if I'm the one driving, but I'm still stressed. It's just that the stress is maxed out because like whatever happens, I'm going to know about it and like have some autonomy over the situation, which I, it's a little bit paradoxical. It doesn't really make sense, but again, yeah, it does suggest that like control is at the root of it. But then I think that that's, that's very reasonable. I think that's the thing about driving, right? Like it makes a lot of things that like we generally think of as like purely psychological, very, very real. Um, because, you know, traffic in general and, you know, having grown up in a big city, both of us in uh, right near like a big arterial road, um, like those spaces with traffic, right? Like people are negotiating with each other constantly, right? Like it's a constant series of, there are traffic lights, but then there are also like a million little decisions that people are making, you know, and we make agreements like, I'm going to leave this distance of space between us. And if I make it any smaller, then that's aggressive. Or like, actually, I remember when we were both learning to drive and, or maybe we'd just like got our license. Anyway, I remember how fun it was to practice. <laughs> or maybe it doesn't seem sound fun in retrospect, but like practicing like clutch control, like creeping forward on a, in traffic without putting the brake on. Um, or like coming to a complete stop, like, that stuff, it's like how growing up is about like, you learn how to do it yourself from being in constant negotiation with other people. And what's weird is that it doesn't feel like human behavior because what you're looking at is a bunch of machines, right? Like you usually can't really see that other person in, in a car and yet it's nothing but human behavior at the same time. So, Again, I don't know whether that, maybe it's like symbolic, like it seems to have a really strong symbolic relationship to everyday life. Um, uh, and I also just found it quite like poetic. I don't know. I think driving gives me a lot of feelings. Like some of those feelings are really, really positive, like independence, right? A sense of adventure, freedom, um, I've never owned a car, but like of my own, but if I got one, I imagine I'd be really proud of it. So I don't know. Um, maybe it's like, maybe I just need to, maybe I need to focus on the positives more and see them as like connected to the fears. I don't know. What's your Yeah, thinking? traffic as society. <laughs> traffic to me is I mean, human society. I've almost got this like, uh, computer game like sims like image of all these cars like floating around and negotiating with each other in this kind of 
beautiful way because I always I cycle in London which is very risky um yeah every time I leave the house on my bike at least one negative thing happens like one thing where I've had to mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know respond to something but but what you've made me realize is for every one of those one things there's probably like a hundred things where someone lets you go they give you space like there is also a kind of beautiful um right. negotiation or allowing space for others that happens at the same time so yeah I think that's a really interesting image of yeah what did you say traffic is society right. yeah and I think that what you're describing those little negative moments and I used to commute by bike in New York. I've never cycled to work in London. That is like, it's too hilly. Oh my God, it must be so tiring. Um, <laughs> what you experience as a negative event is actually like a failure, right? Like it's a moment of failure in the positive things um, rather than somebody deliberately doing something malicious. Does that make sense? I see it differently. Yeah, like, a, like, a, like it's a, a glitch in the system. Totally. Um, how do you feel about driverless cars? I mean, maybe it's a silly question, but it just jumped into my head. No, it's fine. But like, so I not that long ago wrote a review of a book about Elon Musk. And it was really interesting getting to kind of understand what the actual problem with Teslas are. So some of that was about uh, battery cell technology. And some of it was about the whole driverless car concept. So it was really interesting hearing about, for example, actually the crashes are relevant because again, it's an issue of calculating perceived risk. Like when Teslas crash, if they get really, really damaged, the batteries inside the car can set on fire um, and like be impossible to put out. This has happened in a couple of places, there was a Tesla factory fire in Australia about six months ago, for example, and it took like 50 fire trucks, three days to put it out. So that's really terrifying, right? Like there could be, you could be like on a motorway, a Tesla crashes and it's like a, a tower of flame for days. Like that is fucking terrifying. At the same time, the incidence of that happening is so much less frequent than a internal combustion engine running on petrol is likely to just blow up if you crash into a tree, right? So they're still safer, even though the accidents when they happen are horrific and much more memorable. So that is a really interesting problem to me. Like, how do you communicate to the public? Like, actually, this is overall safer when they might have just read like a news article about like three people dying in a horrible fire. Anyway, so that's one thing. And the other thing is this self-driving program because I was reading about one of the crashes that's taken place. And most of the crashes, and obviously I'm I'm not an expert on Teslas and their software, and I'm sure that there are maybe other mistakes, but like the ones that at least have been reported on really thoroughly were often about user error. So... For example, there was one where this, um, this is in the United States, there was a couple in a car, they turned on the self-driving thing and then they crashed after they went through, they kind of plowed ahead as a big truck was crossing the street and they like hit the truck and blew up and caused one of these like massive fires. And eventually what the um, investigation discovered was that 
the couple were actually having sex in the back of the car and were completely ignoring the system and had caused this massive accident where like multiple people died. It was like a terrible situation entirely through user error. And yet it also exposed problems within the system, even if you were using it right. So like there's something about user behavior and how it interacts with cars, I think, and also about perception, which make self-driving cars like a really difficult thing to understand like whether or not they're safe and i think that's because the whole concept of safety is something that when it comes to automobiles right like we just don't have a good understanding of like as you say the thing about like comparative statistics not really working when they you know like crossing the road and driving a car is so much safer than air travel or like swimming with sharks whatever um like, how can you get the public to change its understanding of something that they already don't understand on purpose? Does that make sense? And I think that there's something similar, but maybe about, maybe this is a stretch, but about like grief and loss and, you know, experiencing stuff like you did with Richard, because it's uh, like, we're not really encouraged to think about mortality or rather, like, you can't go around, you can't go through your life thinking about death all of the time because then you wouldn't be able to live your life, right? And so when you're forced to, you're confronted with this world that, like, doesn't actually have any tools to assist you with it because the whole point is that, like, none of us get it. Maybe that's a stretch. <laughs> but I guess it's, like, a knowledge problem, right? Like, how do you understand something that is, like, intrinsically impossible to understand? You can't, but you can like think about it. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you for, I can't even, I was going to say thank you for going on this journey with me or sharing this journey with me. <laughs> going on this drive. Going on if this drive. If only we could go to McDonald's Tuesday, and I get know. like black coffee. <laughs> yeah, if only we could. Yeah, exactly. I'm, th these. I don't know if our chats were quite at this level when we were driving around the the north circular um back in yeah the but even if our chats were really um poor like we had great mixtape we had yes you know like actual driving tape. right up at the speed limit yeah we had an actual tape and i just like have a really strong sense memory of uh well listening to wyclef jean and the backstreet yes. boys and but very specifically of having to get got coffee and like parked up in the pouring rain like before school and I was like smoking a cigarette through a crack in the window <laughs> just like again it's a really strong sensory memory and it's like it's a literal journey even though there's I don't know I have a good memory for like atmospheres not so much for conversation it's funny I so I remember like the weather I remember that I remember that as well the, the it raining and not wanting to get out of the car um okay then we both remember I I mean, memory. I guess school was always, for me anyway, a backdrop of a place to hang out with my friends. So once we had a, <laughs> once, like it was just, you know, the, um, the teachers were the extras in the, like in my life. <laughs> <laughs> and so once we had a car to hang out in, why would we get out of it and go to this building? Like that makes sense to me. Right. Yeah. It was like a backdrop with wheels. Exactly. Um, here's one question we asked before we before we go. Um, pretending to be fine is something we do on a daily basis. 
Is there a small way that you've done that recently? Uh, yes. My wife and I had to drive up to um, East Harlem to pick up the dog. Poor doggy. Um, my dog had to get spayed because after we rescued her, her, it turned out her paperwork was forged. So we had to go and get her spayed. So we had to drive all the way across New York on a Sunday evening to go and collect her. And I really, really did my best to just like talk myself into pretending to be fine in the car rather than like feeling anxious about the traffic and stuff. And it worked. And you know why? It also worked, especially on the way back, because I was taking care of the doggy and like making sure that she wasn't scared and stuff. And then I wasn't scared. So I guess that maybe this is a little bit against the principle of most of these yeah you're subverting like how the, they'll uh... turn out but sometimes you have to pretend to be fine you got to fake it till you make it right and like <laughs> i you know maybe you know there are things about your 20s that you would have done differently if you could do them again but you were you and you had the tools that you had and like uh maybe i don't know sometimes pretending to be fine right like it's what it's not what part of your mind or being needs but like some other part of you does needs that right like a little bit of delusional sorry again i'm talking about me driving now is that of that like a little bit of just like we're just gonna keep going and not like give in to the fear and like process it when the time is right and um i don't know so yeah sometimes you got to give yourself a bit of credit for the coping mechanisms yeah, I definitely. That's the lesson of joy. Um, the lesson of the car. Yeah, no, I that definitely resonates. Um, so, yeah, and as promised in your intro, subversive. So here we are. You've definitely <laughs> done that, but, but that's great. That's why we have these conversations to expand our minds. Um, so thank you, thank you so much for coming on today. Um, it's been a real pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening to Totally Fine with Tiffany Philippou, hosted by me, Tiffany Philippou. Anna Coggiorado is the executive producer. Editing and mixing is by Chris Bannister. And you may recognise us because we've also got another show called Is This Working? So you can check that out too. And if you like what you heard, please make sure to subscribe to the show on your favourite podcast app. And if you're listening on Apple, please leave us a review as that really helps more people find the show too. Thank you.